Well, uh, if you would look on page um, 10 of your worship folder, if you're following along at home, uh, today on Pentecost, we, we um, began a new sermon series called uh, Church in the Life of the Spirit. And this morning, our scripture reading comes from, it's really two chapters I've sort of um, selected, but uh, from Acts 1, verses 4 through 11, which is about Jesus' ascension into heaven, and then skipping over to the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So uh, hear God's word to us this morning from the book of Acts. And while staying with Jesus, staying with them, that is the disciples, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the, whole, of, the, of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every tribe and nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphola, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now, just like you did over 2,000 years ago. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon me to speak um, a word of unity, a word of hope, a word of courage, a word of healing, 
and a word that, that gives us hope, Lord, as we look at this world in confusion, to know that you enter into our confusion, Lord, the confusion of our own hearts, the confusion of our nation, to proclaim your mighty works to us in words that we can understand. So we pray that Jesus would stand in our midst this morning through your spirit, even as he is the ascended one in heaven. In his name we pray. Amen. The disciples were not expecting Jesus to ascend into heaven. They had a very different understanding of how history was supposed to play out. And their job description for a Messiah was fairly different than Jesus' own understanding of his job description. And this is revealed by their question, the question you see in verse 6, when they ask, When, Lord, when, Lord, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? What's behind this question? What are their expectations when they ask? You have to remember that Israel is a colony. They're a colony of the Roman Empire. In fact, from the time of the exile of Israel, 400 years prior to this, Israel, the land of Israel, has been colonized by other nations, Babylonians, Assyrians, Persians, Greeks, and now the Romans. They've not had political independence or autonomy. They have been ruled for centuries by pagan governors and kings. And so when they ask this question, when, Lord, will you restore the kingdom? They are very much thinking about Jewish political independence from Rome. But not just political independence in the way we think about it, because politics in the ancient world was, was holistic, it was religious, it was, it was communal. They're asking this question, when, Lord, will we be independent of Roman rule? When will we be independent from all the idolatry in the land? When will the temple be cleansed of all these hypocrites? When, Lord, will you gather the scattered dysphoria from the nations here and resettle them? When will righteousness and justice flow through the land? That is the question, the questions behind their question of when, Lord, will you restore the kingdom? And what's interesting is that Jesus' response to them, he does not rebuke them. He doesn't rebuke them for being too politically minded. What he, he, he reframes. He says, it is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Your hopes are not misplaced. Your desire for justice and righteousness is not wrong. But things will not play out according to the timetable that you're expecting or happen in quite the same way that you might think it would happen. And what he does is he reframes their understanding of political history by the promise of the Holy Spirit. He does it twice in this text. Before they ask the question, he tells them, wait, wait for the promise of the Father <clears throat> that you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. After they ask when he will restore the kingdom, Jesus' response to them is, but you will receive the Holy Spirit. 
He will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus reframes all of their political longings by the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the temptation when we read this story from our perspective, there's been a temptation to want to try to draw a sharp contrast between the disciples' political hopes and dreams and desires for Jesus the Messiah and Jesus' own more spiritual understanding of mission and what it means uh, to be a follower of him. Right? So Jesus is spiritual. Right? It's about forgiveness of sins and, and grace and mercy and the gift of the Spirit. And the disciples are thinking politically, right? But it's, it is a mistake to draw this contrast. According to Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a political event. It is a political event that will change the course of world history. The gift of the Spirit at Pentecost introduces into the world something new, a new spirituality that will change and redirect. The advent of the Spirit opens up new possibilities and new directions. And this is all confirmed even in the book of Acts, which starts in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. And the disciples' sense of history and political life is completely transformed after Pentecost. Israel is not restored. In fact, in the year 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. And really, Israel, over the next 400 years, is dispersed and colonized yet again by other places and other tribes and nations. And yet, the gospel goes out. It goes out from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And a mere 400 years later, the gospel overtakes the Roman Empire. It's really quite incredible. Friends, we are living in a moment of history that began at Pentecost, and we are still in that moment. We are in Pentecostal history. We are living in the age of the Holy Spirit, and the events of history are under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and they are just as surprising and miraculous now as they were 2,000 years ago. And one of the marks of belonging to Pentecostal history, it is not a history that is oriented backwards, but it is a history that is oriented frontwards, forward. The disciples were oriented backwards prior to Pentecost. They're asking, when, Lord, will you restore the kingdom? When, Lord, will you return to Israel like it was during the reign of King David? And we all tend to be like the disciples. We all tend to look backwards rather than forwards. And I think that's what we are doing now, right? We, we're asking this question, when, Lord, are you going to restore life to the way it was prior to COVID-19? When are things going to go back to normal? And Jesus says to us the same thing he said to his disciples He doesn't rebuke us. It's not a bad question. It's not a wrong desire. But he says to us, it's not for you to know the times and the season that the Father has set by his own authority. But I want you to remember something, friends. You do not belong to this dying history. There is a new history that has come on the scene, and it has come in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
And this history is traveling through this old, dying, decaying history. And it is mysterious. But in this history is new life and new hope and new possibility. Remember that you belong to a Pentecostal history. And you are a Pentecostal people. And this is a history of the Holy Spirit. And it is a history of miracle. It is a history of mission. It is a history in which you as my people proclaim my reign and my rule as God goes forth about in all the nations. Pentecostal history is not a backwards-looking history. It is a forward-looking history. It is not a hope that things will get back to the way they were in the glory days, but it is an anticipation of something new, of something undreamt. It is to have hope that the Holy Spirit, God, is going to bring not just a restoration, but a new creation. That is what it means to belong to Pentecostal history. I want to just reflect on two specific things that we learn from the Ascension and from Pentecost in particular about what it means to belong to this history. And the first one is that to belong to Pentecostal history is to have a new sense of political destiny. To belong to Pentecostal history is to have a new sense of political destiny. And the second point I want to talk about is to belong to Pentecostal history is to have a true multicultural hope. It's to have true multicultural hope. The experience of Pentecost is something that again, completely reorients the disciples' sense of political destiny. Again, remember, they're good Jews. And they were fixated, and they were, they were focused, just like we are, on the religious, cultural, political restoration of the nation of Israel in particular. But what is given to them in the Ascension and at Pentecost is a whole new political frame a much more comprehensive and cosmic political vision of reality. And their political vision, just like ours, was narrowly ethnocentric and regional. But what the Ascension and Pentecost shows them is that it's not just the restoration of Israel that God desires. It's the restoration of all the nations. It's not just the salvation of Israel that God desires and to which he is committed, it is the salvation of all the nations. And it is here is where there's, it's important for us to just pause and reflect on the significance of Jesus' ascension for how we understand Pentecost in our, own, in our own time. And I didn't get a chance to preach on ascension last Sunday, so here I am sneaking a little ascension sermon in. Why is ascension important? What does the ascension mean? I mean, again, sometimes we think of the ascension as just like Jesus' disappearing act from history, right? He goes up through the clouds and we can no longer see him. But ascension is not Jesus' disappearing act. Ascension is Jesus' exaltation into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. See, the disciples were, when they asked this question, when, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're, they're really asking a question of when, Lord, are you just going to sit on the throne? When are you going to hit, sit on the throne of Jerusalem and make all things right? But what, to their surprise, what Jesus does is he does not ascend a throne in Jerusalem. He ascends a throne in heaven. Such that he is not just the king of Jews. 
He's not just the king of Israel. He is the Lord and the king of all the nations. Which is why, you know, that song, which comes from uh, Revelation uh, 19, which says, He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is king of kings and lord of lords. In Peter's um, sermon on Pentecost, he quotes from Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm, or the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. And he's really reflecting on the meaning of Jesus' ascension. And Peter quotes, he says, for, he said, this is Peter from chapter 2, verse uh, 34. Um, he sa- Peter is preaching, he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And then Peter goes on and comments. He says, let all the house of Israel know. Therefore, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. Friends, the message of ascension and of Pentecost is that a new political reality has come about in the cosmos. A new political reality has come about in the cosmos. Jesus of Nazareth has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of God and now all power and rule and authority has been given to him. Everything now is ordered to him and around him, and someday when he returns again on the clouds and the way he left, he will bring it all in line. And he will, as we say in the creed, come and judge the living and the dead. Pentecostal history, to which we belong, is that time between ascension and the second coming. And it is a time of mission. It is a time of mission. That is the politics of the church, the politics of mission. Christian mission really comes about as a response to this new political, rea- new political reality. Christian mission isn't just like Jesus commanded us to be witnesses. It is a response to this new reality. He ascends. The, the resurrected Lord is ascended into heaven. And mission really is a response to his universal lordship. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what he does, and again, this is that new sense of political destiny where he reorients the thinking of the disciples away from a a kind of an ethnocentric politics of nation building to the politics of mission. And the politics of mission is this. it It is the call and the proclamation to all tribes and all nations and all peoples to align themselves according to this new political reality that Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord. In his ascended humanity as Jesus of Nazareth, he is big enough to hold together all the diversity of all the nations and tribes and people in one. He has ultimate authority and power, final authority, And someday this fallen world order will be reorganized completely to him and the righteousness and the justice of his humanity. And even though that reality right now is hidden below the clouds 
and we cannot see it. Someday it will be the world's future. Sometimes we talk about being on the right side of history. Jesus is the right side of history. He is the one in whom history will end. He will bring history to an end. And Christian mission is nothing less than just proclaiming and living according to this new reality. The call to repentance is a call to align ourselves and to give allegiance, allegiance to the Lord, to Jesus as the King. But the politics of mission do not have reference only to Jesus as Lord. They also have to reference to Jesus as Savior. The politics of mission is a politics of salvation. It is an understanding of salvation for the nations that is found only in Jesus Christ. That salvation for the nations is found only in Jesus Christ. It is an understanding that through him, as the prophet Amos says, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. His life reveals to us the meaning of justice and perfect righteousness. His life was one that was a continual confrontation with injustice, the naming of oppression and evil for what it was. And yet the politics of Jesus and his confrontation with evil and injustice in this world was very unlike our own earthly politics. He did not use coercion. He did not use violence. He did not confront just injustice and evil with the force of the sword, but with the power of the spirit. His politics were the politics of enemy love, one that went to battle and to war against oppression and justice, but not by inflicting bodily harm or not by inflicting suffering on the unjust, but by bearing suffering in his own body. And in doing this, he bears witness to true justice and righteousness. The politics of Jesus as Savior is a politics of the cross. And this politics recognizes that the only path to true justice, the only path to righteousness for the nation, comes through being reconciled to him as Savior and as Lord. As the Ascended One, seated at the right hand of the Father, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come again to make all things right, to bend back that which is made crooked. But as a crucified one, the one who suffered violent and unjust death, on the cross, right now, he holds out mercy and forgiveness and peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. The politics of the cross, the politics of Jesus as Savior, is a recognition that the deepest root of injustice in this world is found in the human heart and its rebellion and its alienation from its creator. It is a recognition that the world can never become a just place. 
It can never become a just place until its relationship with God has been set right. And Jesus as Savior has made provision for that setting right. He has made provision for that reconciliation in his own body that was broken. In him there is forgiveness. In him there is mercy. In him there is hope for the healing of the nations. And this politics of the cross is what it means to be the church. That we embody this life in our life. And we hold out to a world a vision and a picture of what it means for Jesus to be both Lord and Savior of the nations. To belong to Pentecostal history is to have this sense, this new sense of political destiny. But it is also to have a Pentecostal, it's also to have multicultural hope. At the heart of the meaning of Pentecost is the future promise of racial reconciliation. A racial reconciliation of all the tribes and nations of peoples of this world through the power of the Holy Spirit around the person of Jesus Christ. This is one of the other meanings of what it means to belong to a Pentecostal history. And this is what the church is called to be and to embody in its own life. Pentecost is a defining multicultural event in the life of the church that is made possible by the Holy Spirit. I want to reflect with you a little bit on the meaning of Pentecost. Look at our text in verse 2, chapter 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, if you remember our text, in Jerusalem at this time, or the time of Pentecost, um, it was a time of pilgrimage when Jews from all across the Roman Empire and Mediterranean came to Jerusalem to worship. And of course, as Jews, they, they spoke the languages of those different countries. And so many of them did not speak Aramaic, which was the language um, that the disciples and Jesus um, spoke. They spoke all these different languages. But when the Spirit is poured out, all of a sudden the disciples are speaking in the language of all the nations around them. And they are hearing, they are hearing news about Jesus and the mighty acts of God in their own language, in their own tongue, and they can understand it. But to everybody else, it sounds like babbling, right? The miracle of Pentecost is how the Holy Spirit makes the message of the gospel comprehensible to us in our own language. It's incredible. It's incredible. God pours out his spirit, not just on Jewish flesh. He pours out his spirit on all flesh, all tribes, all nations, all people. He pours out his flesh on Samaritans, who are a despised race because they were a mixed race of Gentile and Jew. And the Lord pours out his spirit on their flesh. The Lord pours out his spirit on the flesh of an Ethiopian eunuch, a man who's been maimed in his body, who's a black man. The Lord pours out his spirit on him. The Lord pours out his spirit on a slave girl. The Lord pours out his spirit on a Roman centurion. The Lord pours out his spirit on all flesh and all hear the gospel and meet the living God. 
And this is the pattern we see in the book of Acts of Pentecost, as you see the Spirit catalyzing the church out from this very Jewish, Jerusalem-centric to the outer ends of the world in multicultural mission. Again, Jesus is the Lord and Savior of all the nations. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. He's a Palestinian Jew. That will never change. But to embrace him does not mean you have to become culturally and politically and socially Jewish or Palestinian. You don't have to learn to speak Hebrew or Aramaic. No, the tongues of Pentecost mean that through the power of the Holy Spirit, people can come to know and follow and worship Jesus from within the context of their own culture and nation. The Holy Spirit is the power of translation. The Holy Spirit overcomes the cultural and language boundaries and barriers that used to keep the nations apart from one another, that used to, to, to just sound like the babble. The Holy Spirit overcomes that. Again, in the background of this story of Pentecost are echoes of the story of the Tower of Babel, which was part of our sacred reading. And at Pentecost, what we see is the beginning of the reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, all the people of the earth are gathered in one place, and they're seeking to build a tower that reaches into the heavens. There is one language, there is one culture, and God is worried. And he is displeased by this sinful uniformity. We often think that the reason that uh, God scatters and gives them other languages is because you know, they were too powerful with their technology and they were getting into heavens. And there was a part of that, but really, the people were disobedient to God's command to be fruitful and to fill the earth, to scatter. There was a way that they sought uniformity and, and it was oppressive. And what the Lord does is he scatters them. He gives them languages that are different such that they can't understand one another. And the curse of Babel is this, not that there's all kinds of different languages and tribes and nation. The curse of Babel is this, that because of our differences, because of our language differences, there is confusion, there is separation, there is conflict, and there is war. There is war because of our differences. Pentecost is not a reversal of God's original act of multiculturalism, but a sanctification of it. Right? Think about it. The Spirit doesn't pour out on the disciples and give everybody an understanding to be able to understand Aramaic. It's not like a translator <laughs> in their ear translating Aramaic. No, he actually makes the disciples proclaim in the languages of the nations. There's an affirmation here of, of the, the diversity of the nations. And, and the, the picture you see at the end of history in Revelation and in Daniel and, and Isaiah is actually not just one nation coming together around the throne of God, but all the nations. All the nations and their cultures and their goods and that which makes them distinctively themselves coming and worshiping around the Lamb. See, the Tower of, of, of Babel was, was unity without diversity but Pentecost brings oneness and it brings harmony that preserves our differences. Babel was a false solidarity that sought to establish, you know, dominion upon the earth through, through a, a prideful human ascension. But Pentecost happens because a true ascension has taken place. The ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect righteous man 
who humbled himself on a cross and was exalted to the right hand of God, only in his ascended humanity is, it be, is there enough room and space to hold us all together. And from that place of heaven, he sends his spirit down upon us in tongues. He pours his spirit out upon our flesh and creates new life and heals division and overcomes misunderstanding and draws us all together upward into the life of God. Friends, that is the promise of Pentecost. That is the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of the great themes in the apostles' preaching in the book of Acts is that there are two things that you get when you repent. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the forgiveness of sins means that we can have peace with God in our life that we can be reconciled to God. And the gift of the Spirit means this, that we can have the presence of God in our life, that God dwells with us. His temple presence, his intimate presence is with us. Throughout the New Testament, there is a universal sentiment, and it is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and bodies of believers is a mind-boggling gift. It's a mind-boggling gift. Nobody depended or could expect that in the Old Testament. But because of Jesus, because the one who was God, the Word, became flesh, because of his death and resurrection and ascension, now the Spirit is given to us to indwell us. To have the gift of the Spirit is an indescribable gift. It is to have dwelling in us, poured out upon us, as the creed says, the Lord and giver of life. The Lord and giver of life dwells in us. Friends, the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives means that we belong to a different history. The history that is playing out before our eyes right now is, is, a, is, a, is a confounding history. And it looks like it's all falling apart. But friends, all along, Lord, all along, <laughs> the history that we take our cues from is not the history of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is in our midst. We have a different political destiny. And that destiny is, as Amos says, it is a future where justice rolls down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I want to make a connection here because in the, in the scriptures, um, the Holy Spirit is often described in terms of water or rivers of life. The flow and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is, into this creation, is the flow of justice and righteousness itself that comes from the throne of God. It rolls down, in a sense, from heaven, off of Jesus, into our lives. It flows from the humanity of the crucified one into us. And those of us who walk in this spirit live out this justice and this righteousness in this world. It is to have a history with hope. That's what it means to be a Pentecostal people. It is to have a sense of history of hope. That what we see out there right now is actually not how it will end up. To have the gift of the spirit is to have access now. Now. To the presence of the world as it will someday be. A place of justice and righteousness when the ascended one comes again on the clouds and he makes all things new. 
Brothers and sisters, the Lord has poured out his spirit today upon you in Jesus Christ. Take hope and courage in that reality. Let us pray. Father, we, we, um, we cry out, come Holy Spirit, pour your spirit upon us, on our dry and dusty hearts, upon our despondent hearts. Father, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for the comfort of your spirit. We pray that you would lead us during these strange and difficult times to be your people and to be a Pentecostal people of hope. We give you thanks and praise for Jesus, our ascended one, and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we pray in their name. Amen.